Section 8 of The Princess and Curdie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Princess and Curdie by George MacDonald. Chapters 11 to 12. Chapter 11. Lena. It was Lena. All at once Curdie recognized her, the frightful creature he had seen at the princess's. He dropped his pickaxes and held out his hand. She crept nearer and nearer, and laid her chin in his palm, and he patted her ugly head. Then she crept away behind the tree, and lay down panting hard. Curdie did not much like the idea of her being behind him. Horrible as she was to look at, she seemed, to his mind, more horrible when he was not looking at her. But he remembered the child's hand, and never thought of driving her away. Now and then he gave a glance behind him, and there she lay flat, with her eyes closed and her terrible teeth gleaming between her two huge forepaws. After his supper and his long day's journey, it was no wonder Curdie should now be sleepy. Since the sun set, the air had been warm and pleasant. He lay down under the tree, closed his eyes, and thought to sleep. He found himself mistaken, however. But, although he could not sleep, he was yet aware of resting delightfully. Presently he heard a sweet sound of singing somewhere, such as he had never heard before. A singing as of curious birds far off, which drew nearer and nearer. At length he heard their wings, and, opening his eyes, saw a number of very large birds, as it seemed, alighting around him, still singing. It was strange to hear song from the throats of such big birds. And, still singing, with large and round, but not the less bird-like voices, they began to weave a strange dance about him, moving their wings in time with their legs. But the dance seemed somehow to be troubled and broken, and to return upon itself in an eddy, in place of sweeping smoothly on. And he soon learned, in the low, short growls behind him, the cause of the imperfection. They wanted to dance all round the tree, but Lena would not permit them to come on her side. Now Curdie liked the birds, and did not altogether like Lena. But neither, nor both together, made a reason for driving away the princess's creature. Doubtless she had been the goblin's creature, but the last time he saw her was in the king's house, and the dove-tower, and at the old princess's feet. So he left her to do as she would, and the dance of the birds continued only a semicircle, troubled at the edges and returning upon itself. But their song and their motions, nevertheless, and the waving of their wings, began at length to make him very sleepy. All the time he had kept doubting whether they could really be birds, and the sleepier he got, the more he imagined them something else. But he suspected no harm. Suddenly, just as he was sinking beneath the waves of slumber, he awoke in fierce pain. The birds were upon him, all over him, and had begun to tear him with beaks and claws. He had but time, however, to feel that he could not move under their weight, when they set up a hideous screaming and scattered like a cloud. 
Lena was among them, snapping and striking with her paws, while her tail knocked them over and over. But they flew up, gathered, and descended on her in a swarm, perching upon every part of her body, so that he could see only a huge, misshapen mass, which seemed to go rolling away into the darkness. He got up and tried to follow, but could see nothing, and, after wandering about hither and thither for some time, found himself again beside the hawthorn. He feared greatly that the birds had been too much for Lena, and had torn her to pieces. In a little while, however, she came limping back, and lay down in her old place. Curdie also lay down, but, from the pain of his wounds, there was no sleep for him. When the light came he found his clothes a good deal torn, and his skin as well, but gladly wondered why the wicked bird had not at once attacked his eyes. Then he turned, looking for Lena. She rose and crept to him, but she was in far worse plight than he, plucked and gashed and torn with the beaks and claws of the birds, especially about the bare part of her neck, so that she was pitiful to see and these worst wounds she could not reach to lick. "'Poor Lena,' said Curdie, "'you got all those helping me.' She wagged her tail and made it clear she understood him. Then it flashed upon Curdie's mind that perhaps this was the companion the princess had promised him, for the princess did so many things differently from what anybody looked for. Lena was no beauty, certainly, but already the first night— she had saved his life. "'Come along, Lena,' he said. "'We want water.' She put her nose to the earth, and, after snuffing for a moment, darted off in a straight line. Curdie followed. The ground was so uneven that, after losing sight of her many times, at last he seemed to have lost her altogether. In a few moments, however, he came upon her waiting for him. Instantly she darted off again. After he had lost and found her again many times, he found her the last time lying beside a great stone. As soon as he came up, she began scratching at it with her paws. When he had raised it an inch or two, she shoved in first her nose and then her teeth, and lifted with all the might of her neck. When, at length, they got it up, there was a beautiful little well. He filled his cap with the clearest and sweetest water and drank. Then he gave to Lena, and she drank plentifully. Next he washed her wounds very carefully, and as he did so, he noticed how much the bareness of her neck added to the strange repulsiveness of her appearance. Then he bethought him of the goatskin wallet his mother had given him, and taking it from his shoulders, tried whether it would do to make a collar of for the poor animal. He found there was just enough, and the hair so similar in colour to Lena's, that no one could suspect it of having grown somewhere else. He took his knife, ripped up the seams of the wallet, and began tying the skin to her neck. It was plain she understood perfectly what he wished, for she endeavoured to hold her neck conveniently, turning it this way and that while he contrived, with his rather scanty material, to make the collar fit. As his mother had taken care to provide him with needles and thread, he soon had a nice gorget ready for her. He laced it on with one of his boot-laces, which its long hair covered, 
poor Lena looked much better in it. Nor could anyone have called it a piece of finery. If ever green eyes with a yellow light in them looked grateful, hers did. As they had no longer any bag to carry them in, Curdie and Lena now ate what was left of the provisions. Then they set out again upon their journey. For seven days it lasted. They met with various adventures, and in all of them Lena proved so helpful and so ready to risk her life for the sake of her companion, that Curdie grew not merely very fond, but very trustful of her. And her ugliness, which at first only moved his pity, now actually increased his affection for her. One day, looking at her stretched on the grass before him, he said, "'Oh, Lena, if the princess would but burn you in her fire of roses!' She looked up at him, gave a mournful whine like a dog, and laid her head on his feet. What or how much he could not tell, but clearly she had gathered something from his words. CHAPTER Twelve, MORE CREATURES one day, from morning till night, they had been passing through a forest. As soon as the sun went down, Curdie began to be aware that there was more in it than themselves. First he saw only the swift rush of a figure across the trees at some distance. Then he saw another, and then another at shorter intervals. Then he saw others both further off and nearer. At last, missing Lena, and looking about after her, he saw an appearance as marvellous as herself steal up to her, and begin conversing with her after some beast fashion, which evidently she understood. Presently what seemed a quarrel arose between them, and stranger noise followed, mingled with growling. At length it came to a fight, which had not lasted long, however, before the creature of the wood threw itself upon its back, and held up its paws to Lena. She instantly walked on, and the creature got up and followed her. They had not gone far before another strange animal appeared, approaching Lena, when precisely the same thing was repeated, the vanquished animal rising and following with the former. Again and yet again and again, a fresh animal came up, seemed to be reasoned and certainly was fought with and overcome by Lena, until at last, before they were out of the wood, she was followed by forty-nine of the most grotesquely ugly, the most extravagantly abnormal animals imagination can conceive. To describe them were a hopeless task. I knew a boy who used to make animals out of heather roots. Wherever he could find four legs, he was pretty sure to find a head and a tail. His beasts were a most comic menagerie, and right fruitful of laughter. "'but they were not so grotesque and extravagant as Lena and her followers. "'One of them, for instance, was like a boa constrictor "'walking on four little stumpy legs near its tail. "'About the same distance from its head were two little wings, "'which it was forever fluttering, as if trying to fly with them. "'Curdie thought it fancied it did fly with them, "'when it was merely plodding on busily with its four little stumps.' How it managed to keep up he could not think. Till once, when he missed it from the group, the same moment he caught sight of something at a distance, plunging at an awful serpentine rate through the trees. And presently, from behind a huge ash, this same creature fell again into the group, quietly waddling along on its four stumps. 
Watching it after this, he saw that, when it was not able to keep up any longer, and they had all got a little space ahead, it shot into the wood away from the root, and made a great round serpentine along in huge billows of motion, devouring the ground, undulating awfully, galloping as if it were all legs together and its four stumps nowhere. In this mad fashion it shot ahead, and a few minutes after, toddled in again among the rest, walking peacefully and somewhat painfully on its few fours. From the time it takes to describe one of them, it will be readily seen that it would hardly do to attempt a description of each of the forty-nine. They were not a goodly company, but well worth contemplating nevertheless. And Curdie had been too long used to the goblin's creatures in the mines and on the mountain, to feel the least uncomfortable at being followed by such a herd. On the contrary, the marvellous vagaries of shape they manifested amused him greatly, and shortened the journey much. Before they were all gathered, however, it had got so dark that he could see some of them only apart at the time, and every now and then, as the company wandered on, he would be startled by some extraordinary limb or feature, undreamed of by him before, thrusting itself out of the darkness, into the range of his ken. Probably there were some of his old acquaintances among them, although such had been the conditions of semi-darkness, in which alone he had ever seen any of them, that it was not like he would be able to identify any of them. On they marched, solemnly, almost in silence, for either with feet or voice the creature seldom made any noise. By the time they reached the outside of the wood it was morning twilight. Into the open trooped the strange torrent of deformity, each one following Lena. Suddenly she stopped, turned towards them, and said something which they understood, although to Curdie's ear the sound she made seemed to have no articulation. Instantly they all turned and vanished into the forest, and Lena alone came trotting lithely and clumsily after her master. End of section 8